It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who understand that when everyone gets vaccinated, everyone's vaccines work better. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra, pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, today we have a great conversation with Dr. Nate Chomolo. He is so many things, but um, primarily for now, he is, the, he is an adjunct assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine, which is, you know, an, an okay job. And you might recognize his voice because he took my place in hosting at least one episode of this podcast when Correct. I was traveling. That's and right. I'm, I'm a little nervous that, and I was also traveling during this interview, unfortunately, so I have now missed him twice. I hope that he's not taking that personally. It was really not intentional. And I pointed out that I have never seen Nathan Boonstra and Nate Chomolo together in the same room. But we have, people have, because we have done legislative advocacy together and had a great time doing it. So in, in, in D.C. Agree to disagree. <laughs> okay, now listen, this is an opinion. This is a, this is a matter of fact, okay? This is a factual issue. But that's someone on Twitter told me that we had to agree to disagree. That there's two sides to every story. There's two sides about whether I and Dr. Trumbull are the same person or not. There's arguments made either way. And there's two sides to whether or not VAERS reports are verified or not, Hmm. apparently. All right. Well, do your research. Yeah, do your own research on the Nate Nathan front. (laughs) Um, But we are going to be talking about health equity with Dr. Nate, the bow-tied one, Mm -hmm. because he is a person who has worked hard to bring about greater equity in healthcare and in access to good health in general. And so I learned a lot from him in the interview, and Nathan um, went gallivanting across um, the state of Minnesota, which you can't blame him for doing that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I had a new niece to visit that I had oh. not met yet. And thanks to vaccines, we're all able to get safely together and we're super excited. So that was a really that. wonderful uh, opportunity. Which reminds me, I'm going to go ahead and jump in with my Around the Web. It's extremely self-serving. Go to it. I opened my front door and the UPS guy had put a little package on my front step so i picked it up and i was like oh it's from my friends at descent pins oh they send me more presents than my husband buys for me just (laughs) saying that if i'm ever looking for a new spouse it might be the entire descent pins organization so i open it up and there is this gorgeous blue t-shirt it's kind of retro it says summer 2021 brought to you by vaccines and it was so perfect and i i've never fallen in love Mm -hmm. so deeply and quickly with a shirt as i did that one Mm -hmm. but you know if you go to descentpins.com and go to their vaccines collection there it is for you to purchase, mm-hmm. and maybe that's more of a commercial than an around the web. No, but um, it's some cool stuff. So this is an incredible coincidence. My wife yesterday received the same shirt. I, th- I assume she actually ordered it on purpose because she got some other stuff from them. But that exact same shirt is in her house, and I love it. It is a very cool kind of retro looking. I want to I want to kind of say 70s-ish retro if I remember correctly. Right. Feel I feel like it. it's 1981. Yeah, like early 80s kind of feel to it. I really like it as well. So, check it out. We don't well, we do have some measure of partnership with with uh Descent Pins, right? 
Yeah, they give 50% of their profits that they earn from their vaccine collection to Voices for Vaccines. And last year, the year 2020, before we had a COVID vaccine, mm-hmm. they gave us $15,000. So it's not it's not pennies. Like, they're yeah. extremely generous to Voices for Vaccines. And I'm actually, like, swooning when I think about, like... How what kind of donation they're going to make to us this year. But also, like, I just really love, I love the message of the t-shirt. Like, mm-hmm. I can do summer stuff because of the vaccine. And it's a miracle. I am going tomorrow night to visit a bunch of high school friends um, who have sort of scattered across the country. Mm-hmm. And we're going to sit down and eat a meal together. It's actually going to be an outdoor venue, but still, I wouldn't have done that last summer. And I just, I could almost weep with gratitude. And I, I also want to mention, um, we, I lost a friend a week and a half ago, um, Carl Jeske, mm. um, who was a personal supporter of Voices for Vaccines and a lot of the work I've done in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were able to have his funeral in person um, and a funeral luncheon afterwards. And that is also thanks to the vaccine. And I'm very grateful for the sad times that we can support each other through and for the happy times we can get together. And um, I'm very fortunate that my family is all of the age to get a vaccine so that we can sort of, in a careful way, go Mm -hmm. about resuming our lives. And so that's part of what I love about the t-shirt is it's really, it's just so true that I really couldn't have imagined last summer that we could be at this fantastic, magnificent, magical place. But here we are. Here we are. And that, I agree, that shirt is the coolest way to kind of show it. So check that out on Descent Pins. Thank you. All right, your turn. So I wanted to just go over (laughs) really briefly, let's talk about myocarditis and let's talk about ACIP. So we're not going to do a full ACIP breakdown, but the biggest highlight from the most recent uh, kind of impromptu meeting of uh, ACIP is looking at the incidence of myocarditis, which is kind of inflammation of heart tissue um, that has occurred and been reported following uh, the mRNA vaccine. So that's going to be your Pfizer vaccine and your Moderna vaccine. And so we see these kinds of things all the time where something pops up as kind of VAERS reports or whatnot, but we never know if it's really causative and it's rare. And this was one of those situations. And really when they did this, when they pulled the 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 VAERS data or the reports, but then they also did a vaccine safety data link study. This is the way that this is supposed to go. You have these reports. VAERS can never show causation because there's a lot of reports of a lot of things and it can be influenced by other things like how much is this kind of, are people hearing about this? Therefore, they're going to report it more often, blah, blah, blah. When they did the kind of actual study to kind of look at the incidents in in people who got myocarditis following a vaccine versus the expected incidence in control, you know, group, they actually did find what is considered to be some evidence that there is a probable causative mechanism here. Now, we're talking about a pretty rare incidence of something. Uh, when we actually looked at the numbers in their summary, they were saying somewhere around 12 cases per million is almost entirely after second dose of uh, the mRNA vaccine uh, and almost entirely in kind of younger males. But, and it's, so it's still, we're looking at, you know, one in a hundred-ish thousand range of this, maybe a little bit higher than that. Now, that's understandably concerning. Nobody wants to have a situation in, in, where a vaccine is causing something like this. It's worth pointing out that virtually that everybody in the numbers that they looked at, all the cases that they looked at, they were all either recovered or some of them were still, you know, maybe still in the hospital or not yet recovered. But there were no deaths in the ones, the cases that they were looking at. And also when they broke it down, they kind of did this nice breakdown of, okay, so this is, you know, in these age groups that might be a risk. But this is what you're preventing. This is the risks you're preventing when you get immunized at those ages. So looking at males 18 to 24 years, looking at kind of that higher risk range for this, for every case of, uh, for every about 50 cases of myocarditis that might occur from the vaccine, 
There were 12,000 cases of COVID prevented, 530 hospitalizations prevented, 127 ICU admissions prevented, and three deaths prevented. So, you know, anyway, you look at this, yes, it's a what seems to be at this point a rare but real uh, adverse outcome from a, a side effect from from getting an mRNA vaccine in that age group, that under 40 male age group. Um, but still, it reduces your risk of something bad happening, but tremendously. So as a pediatrician, you know, this is right in my age range where I'm thinking, okay, is this vaccine safe for the teenager patients that I have to get? And I absolutely think any way you look at this data, your risk is a lot, lot lower of something bad happening if you're immunized than not. Now that said, if you get this vaccine, it's almost always within the first week. Uh, if a patient has chest pain of any kind or other concerning symptoms, they really do need to see their doctor and their doctor needs to be thinking about that. Um, the other thing to think about is myocarditis itself, as we would expect, like people who get COVID disease get myocarditis. And as best we can tell, we don't have perfect data on that exactly how many people get myocarditis after vaccine and at what or after after getting the disease and at what age group but it seems to be pretty high there was a study looking at at athletes like young adult athletes that was showing even if they just look at those who presented with symptoms it was like one in 300 people got myocarditis wow. after covid disease after they got covid about one in 300 got myocarditis so we're looking at, even if you're just looking at myocarditis, essentially, if you get vaccinated, you're reducing your risk of myocarditis because you're not going to get COVID. And with the Delta variant going around, like there's good reason to believe if you're not vaccinated, you're probably going to get COVID at some point. You know, maybe not this year, maybe not this next, you know, calendar year, but if you're not immunized, unless we get herd immunity, it's likely to happen. So upshot is that I think this is a good demonstration of how the system works. Like they took a they took a concern seriously. They did the investigation. They found that, yes, this is a real but rare side effect, at least as best we can tell right now. But the recommendation still is, even though it'll be kind of on the label to watch out for that, the recommendation still is, and I think it's a good recommendation, that honestly get immunized when you can get immunized regardless of which vaccine and what age group you're in because the sooner you can get immunized, the safer you're going to be from far worse odds. Absolutely. And, you know, the... um. I had a very strange moment after all of this information came out where that kind of helped me better remember how we actually make decisions about vaccines, right? People assume, people who vaccinate assume wrongly that everyone makes the decisions about vaccine vaccines based on sort of the data and the proof and the evidence, but that's not true. So I had this moment when I was looking at all of that data and thinking about it, and I thought, whoo, boy, I'm glad we got vaccinated before the vaccine started causing myocarditis. And I was like, wait, what? That that doesn't make any sense. Why did I just have that thought? <laughs> like I had this pull, this feeling, and I was like, no, if it happens, yeah. it always happened. And the risk was always the same. Mm -hmm. And that's why we weren't affected by it, because the risk is so rare. That's the actual answer, Karen, not that like, oh, boy, we dodged a bullet by getting it right. in first. Well, and one of the things you're always seeing is like somebody will say, well, why would we immunize with this, with this risk of myocarditis when the risk of dying from COVID is so low? It's like, well, OK, let's compare apples to apples. People aren't dying from the vaccine people are dying even mm -hmm. in these age groups the deaths are happening from the disease if we look mm -hmm. at deaths from vaccine to deaths from disease clearly vaccine is better than disease mm -hmm. uh if we even if we look at myocarditis sure seems like the vaccine is better than getting mm -hmm. the disease if we look at any of these outcomes i mean covid is a we see we know from like the cases of misc like this is a Mm -hmm. multi-system inflammatory uh, problem, you know, multi-system inflammatory effects that are happening from this virus and that in a lot of people are lasting long-term. Mm -hmm. It's it's no picnic, even if you survive. 
and we don't know the long-term effects that are going to, everyone's worried by, oh, this, this vaccine, it's only emergency yeah. use. What about the long-term effects? Well, what are the long-term long effects, effects of, COVID? of COVID are what I'm worried about because these are, we're seeing evidence of inflammatory damage in people after COVID. What's the mm -hmm. effect of that going to be down the line? That's the real concern. The vaccine has a much stronger safety profile than getting infected with wild COVID. For sure. And, you know, though, the, what you just talked about reminds me of two different examples. And the first is actually lead in drinking water mm -hmm. that for a lot of years we used leaded pipes and didn't really take note of it. And the long term effects is were on our kids. Our kids ended up with learning, learning disabilities and sometimes when it got really bad behavioral disorders, which ended up costing our society a ton. And that's all because we were using pipes made out of lead. Um, and, you know, our children were drinking water from, from coming from those pipes. And so I really worry about with COVID, how is it affecting our, our children's health, but how is it affecting their whole well-being? Even if they are asymptomatic, you know, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going to happen to them years down the road. Are they going to be people with early heart problems? Are they going to be people who have, you know, learning problems? All all of these things. And it's just all unknown. And it's not wild. It's not wild to wonder about where this could take it because there are really there really could be some bad places. The other thing this reminds me of is the hepatitis B vaccine because I got a lot of parents who are vaccine confident mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and have newborn babies and they think we don't need a hepatitis B vaccine because I'm monogamous and I don't do drugs and I tested negative for hepatitis B and my, you know I'm gonna breastfeed and my baby's gonna sit in my arms all day and I always say to them, I said, it's that's not the way to look at it. You have to look at the risk analysis, the risk ratio. And the fact of the matter is that the hepatitis B vaccine is so safe that it is a lot less risky to give your newborn child a hepatitis B vaccine than to leave them vulnerable to the disease, even if you don't have those serious risk factors for the disease. It's it's still safer to get the vaccine. And so, you know, it's the same thing with myocarditis and COVID-19 vaccine. Even if you think my child's healthy, my child's good, um, we're all vaccinated around my child, it still is safer to get the vaccine than to leave your kid vulnerable to the disease. Yep, that's kind of the thought process I go through every time I think about my patients. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you've gotta be getting so many questions right now. Um, it must take up a lot of your practice just to go through that you know the hardest questions right now are are the ones that are like so we have you know we have kids that are too young to get the vaccine what mm -hmm. should we or should we not do and that's one of those things where it's very difficult for me to say that because right. that's more of a okay well these are the risk factors um you know it's relatively low prevalence right now it's low risk in terms of those acute outcomes to kids but at the same time like if we cannot get COVID, that's safer for the kids so how do we balance the importance of kids being able to do things versus trying to not to trying to make trying to help them not to get COVID? That's a that's a balancing act that has no perfect answer, and so I try to navigate that with parents, and then they get to make those decisions. But that, that's the tough part. Fortunately, we're hopeful that this vaccine will be available to younger ages coming up soon. So for sure, for sure, yeah. There is no one absolutely correct answer, and that always stinks. Mm -hmm. Well, we are going to pivot and talk about, you know, we're talking about access to our uh, youngest kids right now, but we're going to pivot and talk about access to vaccines and health care and also um, health equity writ large with Dr. Nathan Chamolo after the break. <music> We are now joined by Dr. Nate Chomolo, 
who is an adjunct professor of pediatrics at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Nate. Hi, Karen. Thanks to be here. And it's uh, adjunct assistant professor. You're trying to give me a promotion already. Gosh. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say that you were the dean of the medical school <laughs> to just try to, um, yes, uh, adjunct assistant professor, which is not an easy position at all, having adjunct assistant professored myself for like a semester. It's a uh, that's that's some real work in the classroom and in the community at the same time. Yeah, I, I call it my quasi-academic uh, part of my career. Absolutely. But it also just shows that you are a legitimate and real person who definitely knows your way around medicine. Yeah, and, and been tied to the university now for, oh gosh, 12 some years. Very nice. So we brought you on today because I wanted to talk to you about health equity, um, especially health equity as it relates to vaccines. So I want to back us sort of way, way back and ask you if you were to give a simple definition of what health equity means so that your average person could understand it, what would that be? So I talk about health equity uh, through the lens of opportunity. And so when we are talking about any type of equity, it's that everyone has what they need to have the same opportunity for success and to live out their full potential. And so the same thing goes for health. You need to have uh, the same uh, uh, ability to reach your full potential in health. Um, and, and so health equity is working towards the system, towards the society, where everyone does have that same ability to reach their full potential of health. And, and therefore, it encompasses uh, lots of things that happen outside of a clinic or a hospital. So things like how was the prenatal care that your mother received and how was her health prior uh, to you arriving? How has your nutrition been ever since you were born? Um, do you have a, a safe place uh, to sleep? Um, do you uh, get high quality early childhood interactions and uh, education and childcare? Uh, is the air that you breathe and the water that you drink safe and free from pollutants? Uh, do you feel safe in your neighborhood? Um, so all of these things contribute towards health equity because they impact the opportunity for you to be healthy and reach your full potential of health. That makes a lot of sense. And so for those of us who are you know, sitting outside on a, a beautiful summer day, feeling safe, knowing where our next meal is coming from, knowing, you know, how to access our doctor um, and speaking the same languages as our doctor and having all of those sort of advantages. Um, the idea of health equity could be invisible to us, correct? Yeah. And I think the other piece about it is folks, um, here, equity, which sounds really close to equality, which you know, means people get the same thing, um, but equity is different than equality. Equity is people get what they need to have the same opportunity, which means because we live in a society that is structurally inequitable, and um, part of that is structural racism, that um, means that some communities uh, do deserve um, more resources uh, if we are really striving for equity and not just equality. And, and so that's another piece of it that in addition to, you know, taking certain things for granted because we never have had to worry about the water that we drink, uh, the air that we breathe, um, whether or not our children have a, a roof over their heads um, or we ourselves have roofs over our heads. In addition to not being able to, you know, have our understanding that that is something that is a barrier towards health. Um, also understanding that the solution and the, if we're really striving towards equity, it, it means much more than uh, just everyone getting the same. And that makes a lot of sense too, if we think about disability in particular and how, you know, if, if, if we all want to cross the street, for example, some of us need curbs cut away and some of us need uh, curbs that have, physical bumps on them so that we know where the curb is. Um, some of us need uh, audio signals. Um, and in the same way, we all have 
different needs when it comes to accessing healthcare. I'm assuming. Yeah, and if you go to any you know talks uh, that are kind of trying to cover the difference between equity and equality, you know, one of the um, I think best diagrams that's captured that has been um, folks uh, who all get the same type of bike and then folks who get a bike that actually helps them get where they need to go. And so whether that's a recumbent bike, a hand bike, a tall bike, a short bike, um, you know, they need something a little different uh, to, to get where they need, they're wanting to go versus if you gave everyone just the same bike, that really wouldn't be equity. And so, you know, that kind of fits and, and you know, the, uh, uh, folks in our disability community um, are very familiar with, um, you know, what equity means versus equality. So one thing I wanted to touch on, which can be really difficult for people to to discuss in openly in public, but I think is important to discuss, is sort of this idea of structural or systemic racism and its historic impact on health equity. And so there, you know, there are a lot of people who are white people like me who feel threatened by the idea that systemic racism exists. Um, but I, I'm wondering if you could take us through some examples of where we can see that and where we can see the lack of health equity sort of, uh, you know, historically in um, our American experience. Yeah. And, and so, you know, talking about systemic or structural racism, um, because it uses a word racism that uh, folks have um, a, a history with in feeling like it's a moral judgment of individuals, um, it, it can be hard to kind of move past that and look at the systems and structures that have been put in place over hundreds of years that result in the inequitable outcomes or health disparities uh, that we see. And one of the kind of um, most obvious uh, or easiest ways to see that is looking at uh, just housing. And, and so you looking at Minneapolis and St. Paul, for example, you can go back to the 1930s and 40s when uh, they were doing federal housing uh, loans and uh, they were marking up parts of the city um, and determining which parts were viable and show, uh, for uh, good places to have homes and therefore get low rates um, on, on your loans from the government and then places that were undesirable. Um, and you can see quite clearly uh, that the ways that they drew those up the, and they put red lines around those less desirable places uh, were based off of the minority population, uh, the minoritized population, I should say, so uh, predominantly Black. Um, back at that, in those days, uh, parts of the cities that were Jewish as well, um, uh, those areas uh, often had uh, red lines. And so uh, the value of those homes was lower to be able to get a house. Um, it cost more because the interest rates were uh, uh, higher for those areas. Uh, and then even if folks had money to kind of get into some of the uh, green areas on the map, uh, Black or Jewish folks in particular, there were racial covenants, meaning it was legal to write into your deed that no one of a certain uh, skin color or certain ethnic heritage uh, could own that house. And if uh, you even did a back-end deal and tried to buy that house, the courts could literally take it from you and you would have no equity there. And so this um, over uh, decades um, contributed to lots of the inequity we see in Minneapolis and St. Paul. It, um, it continued uh, to um, contribute to wealth inequality and so the inability to build generational wealth that you pass on and give your uh, children a place to, to get a good start and have their own uh, opportunity for success. Um, it contributed to even how highways were built. So one of the main highways, uh, 94 and 35 uh, South um, were both uh, uh, built through uh, uh, thriving Black neighborhoods and disrupt the growth and success of those neighborhoods. And then when you look at even just the uh, environment, uh, you know, to this date, you can see that a lot of the kind of um, uh, 
in industri industrial plants and places that are producing uh, pollution and toxins um, are predominantly in these areas of our cities. And so we also see higher rates of asthma and uh, chronic diseases uh, in these areas of the city too. And so, um, and then you think about how schools are funded and, and how that uh, contributes to, you know, th these policies and the opportunity of, you know, education has on one's uh, impact, education has on one's opportunity uh, for uh, all sorts of part of their life. And so, so it's, you know, very clear to see the impact on one's health that is stemmed from these policies that um, you know uh, are related directly to racism, um, and and so it, it these are generational policies that and generational impacts that then take lots of times to unwind, um, and and just understanding it is really the first step, and then we have to kind of work to dismantle them. So the city of Minneapolis is um, fairly segregated, uh, all things considered. But this idea of redlining and drawing and, you know, a line from that historical, you know, keeping people out of good neighborhoods and building equity for houses, drawing a line from that to poor health outcomes because of, you know, exposure to, to air pollution and and all of the things you just listed that's not just a minneapolis problem i'm assuming no no unfortunately there's it's seen in you know large cities um uh across uh the country um and it, it was a kind of a, a more subtle you know version uh, there was a, a, a pbs a local pbs documentary that really described it as jim crow of the north because it was a way to um really create kind of a a different set of uh, opportunities uh, for folks, you know, based off of uh, essentially skin color um, right here in Minnesota and in the north, and you see this in other northern cities as well. Um, and so uh, it very much is something that is um, unfortunately uniquely American um, in, in its construction and implementation in, in this last um, uh, century. So let's talk about vaccines then and how are vaccines helpful in bringing about greater equity as far as health access and health outcomes? Um, and how have they not been used that way? So let's, let's start with the good news first. How can vaccines help make, I'm, I'm, let me say this in a better way. Hang on a second, Kevin, I'm going to get this. How are vaccines a force for good when it comes to health equity? Yeah, well, you know, vaccines are some of the safest, most effective um, interventions that we have in medicine at preventing illness, preventing, you know, morbidity or kind of complications from that illness. And so when you think about, um, you know, things that have really helped expand the lifespan, it's really, you know, among the top uh, public health interventions. And so having access to uh, vaccines is one way we provide equitable access uh, to that opportunity for health and success um, in, in our society. And, and certainly you don't have to look you know, much farther than what's going on with COVID-19 and just the uh, incredible um, success and impact of vaccinations in decreasing hospitalizations and, um, and, and deaths in particular um, to, to see that you know, the communities that have had early access to uh, those vaccinations um, and, and taken them uh, are the ones that are, are now protected and not uh, seeing the, the rates are, and having to worry as much about things like variants. And so, um, and so really it's one of the, you know, uh, real key pieces of, if we're thinking about how to really improve equity in health, um, you know, making sure everyone has access to vaccines is one of them. You know, the Vaccines for Children program um, does a really good job of that, making uh, vaccinations uh, for for children in our uh, country is essentially universally accessible. Um, and we, you know, still have work to do to um, uh, 
to, to have that kind of same type of infrastructure for uh, adults. There's you know work towards that in the Affordable Care Act, uh, for example. But um, but still having you know the the same acts as far as the number of providers that participate and advertise and and, and let uh, get, have adults have the, that same level of access. Um, I think is something that you know we're seeing with COVID nineteen, and I'm hopeful that kind of the infrastructure we have around community in, uh, engagement and education. Um, uh, and access continues after the pandemic. One of the things that people have probably been hearing if they've been listening to the news or on um, like four webinars a day, like I have been, is that there's a discrepancy between, um, you know, BIPOC communities and white communities when it comes to confidence in immunization, particularly as a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, and I think for a lot of people that might be confusing, they might not understand what that is about. So what are some of the factors that make confidence vary from community to community based on, you know, race or, um, background, uh, that, that might account for some of that. Yeah, and I'd say I think it really depends on the community because a lot of the national surveys I've been following have shown that when you ask adults um, about it, their interest in the COVID-19 vaccination, um, it's actually pretty you know equal across you know um, race and ethnic community. And so, uh, but the reasons that there is that you know vaccine deliberation or hesitancy um, out there uh, is there's there's some kind of underlying uh, similarities and, and one of them is just a general you know distrust in some of the institutions that uh, are delivering the vaccine and so for some folks that might be uh, the government and some folks that might be uh, in institutionalized medicine um, and, and when we think about uh, the history of you know, structural racism, uh, medicine has its fair share, um, you know, going uh, way, way back until uh, when physicians were used to kind of justify the institutions of slavery and, and land seizure from our indigenous neighbors. Um, and, 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 you know, going forward to the fact that uh, there's numerous studies that show that uh, even today, in, you know, 2015, 2016, there's uh, white physicians who, you know, believe things like the black uh, person's skin is thicker uh, than a white person's skin, and that impacts their treatment of things like pain. And, and these are uh, experiences that folks don't have to go back to Tuskegee to reference their experiences that have happened to themselves, to their family members, people that they know in their community where they've been mistreated by medicine. Um, and then I think, you know, it ties in even to what we are seeing um, more and more and more often with police violence and brutality in that uh, there's a lot of times where medicine and uh, law enforcement overlap. Um, whether it's someone dealing with a mental illness crisis, whether it's things like, um, uh, you know, child protection being called on, uh, on families, um, you know, inappropriately or not, um, it there's a lot of uh, association with uh, these institutions. And so it does not necessarily always happen uh, to be that you experience something bad in the hospital, but you know that the hospital is a place that is connected to these other systems. Um, and, you know, you don't really uh, trust them because of, you know, your experiences with other systems. And then who's who are the faces of these systems that are, that are often not faces from your community. And so I think uh, there's um, a lot of work we have to do to rebuild the trust that has been violated. Um, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of work around things like testing and getting masks and other resources to communities that is really great, but that is needs to continue beyond the pandemic in a way that shows communities that we're really interested and invested in giving, uh, really have helping you achieve your own health equity, achieve your, your most, your best potential and uh, in, in understanding that, you know, your successes connect to ours, not just during a global pandemic, but really uh, for our society to reach its full potential. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think a lot of us watched the, the pandemic, obviously all of us did because we lived through it. And we noticed that some of the real weaknesses or challenges 
in our society were highlighted or made so much more visible to us. And that certainly the different health outcomes of people with COVID were sort of shocking that there's no reason that um, that different people with, you know, similar, you know, age, weight, et cetera, should have such drastically different health outcomes. But that is um, that is what happened. And I think that really highlighted in part sort of the inequity that is baked in to our health systems. Um, and I think there, you know, it looks like there is a lot of work happening, at least on the vaccine front, to increase that access um, for BIPOC communities um, and, you know, for rural communities and all sorts of communities that are often underserved to, you know, making sure that they're getting a vaccine. I'm wondering if you can just um, talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you've seen across the country, you don't have to have experienced it yourself, but some of the things that you've seen that you think have really help improve that access. And, you know, maybe it's something that we can all look at building upon. Yeah. So I, I think there's two types of access that I uh, point to. One is access to reliable information from you know, messengers that you trust. And then one is then access to vaccine once you've got the information to make the decision that's best for, for you and your, your family and your community. And so I, I've been really encouraged to see, um, again, this is going even back to before the vaccine, but when there was uh, test information to get out about testing and what are the best practices to keep one safe from COVID-19, really engaging with trusted messengers. And so that's, you know, maybe not it's your usual um, big four news stations or your usual big newspaper or, or main radio station, NPR affiliate, what have you, but it's actually the, the voices that communities are are most in tune to, used to hearing, and and really trust. And and so, what are the ways that we can kind of engage with uh, communities through those voices? What are the ways we can engage through community-based organizations that are really doing the work and meeting the needs of the community year-round, um, and finding ways to build support into their work and mission as part of our public health uh, response? Uh, you know, again, before, uh, during, and after pandemics. <laughs> And then once you have those sorts of messengers, you can move information that way. Um, then what is the ways that we can improve access? And so this is, these are all things that we know help improve access to healthcare overall, extending hours, um, having things on late nights, early mornings, on the weekends, um, having less barriers to actually getting appointments. So not having to have uh, a, a phone with internet capability, uh, uh, um, having um, Wi-Fi at your own house um, to be able to make an appointment online, uh, but you're able to just walk up um, to places that uh, you know and trust, um, you know, uh, having mobile units that can go out to some of the more, uh, whether it's rural areas or areas that are just underdeveloped, where it's bringing it to um, homeless shelters or places where people are getting other services needs met um, so that you can get that information and then get your service right there as well. Um, and, and then even thinking about um, how can we better leverage some of the systems we do have in place, like using our um, managed care organizations to really kind of do, um, you know, uh, really intensive outreach, calling members one at a time to get them the information, try to arrange things like transportation and then I think cost, right? Like healthcare costs are always uh, something that is debated about, talked about, and is definitely a barrier. Uh, and so the fact that testing has been free, treatment has been free, um, and vaccination has been free. Uh, so what are the ways that we can look to really eliminate cost as a barrier uh, so that everyone does have the opportunity to reach their full potential of health? Can you imagine what the health of our communities would be like if testing for HIV and TB and a whole panoply of illnesses were all free and so easily accessible that, you know, all you had to do is pull into the airport and spit into a tube. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You think about all these things, these chronic illnesses that 
can be preventable um, with you know good primary care, um, you know diabetes, hypertension, um, uh, high cholesterol, so many things that we can uh, we could be doing more about to really improve the health of our communities. Again, help them reach their full potential, and um, and and so there. My hope is, and I, I do imagine these things because that's what I'm, I'm working towards. Is is that we can continue this momentum, and, and when we see the the shared benefit to us all of uh, giving us all the opportunity to reach our full health and potential, that that's those are investments we're willing to make going forward. So, um, one of my uh, personal heroes is Paul Wellstone, and he has a, a say, or he had a saying, I should say, which was, "When we all do better, we all do better." And I think that it's really obvious when it comes to something like COVID vaccination, that when we all get vaccinated, there's less COVID and we're all less susceptible to COVID. Um, but when, when we're thinking about health equity in general, uh, what are some of the positive effects for the community writ large when it comes to making healthcare more equitable? Yeah, I mean, I think I... Uh... As as you know, and, and some folks know my work, I'm a big fan and, and work in Medicaid. And so one of the you know things that we talk about with Medicaid in particular is you know, when we are able to get folks connected to uh, resources and opportunity for health early, we see these long-term savings. And so children who are served by Medicaid um, are less likely to miss school because of issues with their health coming up. Um, they're more likely to do well in school and graduate. Uh, they're more likely to then go on to college and uh, get better paying jobs. And they're less likely themselves or their children to need Medicaid or social um, safety net uh, assistance, and they are more likely to pay taxes. And so there's a whole bunch of benefits right there just from access to Medicaid. And in fact, access to healthcare through Medicaid has also been shown to potentially uh, uh, contribute to, you know, decrease in, in some uh, forms of crime, um, uh, just because it, it, again, keeps you healthier, allows you to stay in the workforce. Um, and, and so there's a whole a bunches of benefits that, you know, we're really haven't even been able to, to capture. Um, but those are some of the ones I, I always point to when we think about, you know, what would health equity look like is, is that if, you know, folks are able to reach their full potential and not have to worry about some of these things, like how hungry they are, um, you know, where they're going to uh, lay their head down, um, how are they going to afford, uh, you know, their next meal or their next rent check, um, and, and what that can, you know, how that contributes to health um, and then how that contributes to our overall society's success and potential. I, I think that's, um, that's a really lovely picture that you painted of, you know, children being successful because they're healthy. And I, I always like to point out here, because I know from my years in education that people don't believe this, but when other children are successful at school, that does not make your child less successful. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and um, I think there's some good evidence that it can help your child um, see different things, um, think about things in a different way, be able to tackle problems and, and challenges and see different opportunities. Um, and, and so I, absolutely, the, there's always, um, you know, the, the strength of diversity is, is it how it challenges us uh, to look beyond what we know. Um, and But to have that, you know, you have to have uh, kids who have uh, the health and the ability to, to be in, in class and, and give their best. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I just want to leave you with one last fun question, right? Um, because we w did all this heavy health equity discussion. Um, and I, I think health equity questions are fun too. They are fun, but they're also really important. So I don't like to treat them too lightly. Yes. But I feel like people deserve to see that you are a person who can treat things lightly. And so uh, what better thing to treat lightly than vaccines themselves? Here's your question. Other than COVID-19, what's your favorite vaccine? Oh, I mean, it has to be measles. I mean, the, what's the <laughs> R on that? Like one or two? It's, it's you know, the fact that uh, I've never had to experience measles ever, um, that it was able to protect my pre-mature uh, son once he was old enough to get it. Um, yeah, yeah. I just, measles looks 
miserable. And, um, and, and so the, and the fact you only have to get two boosters your whole life, right? Like, I know, then you're good. Come on. And then you're good. Like, I don't, I don't know. That's good. That's hard to beat all these other ones that are really effective, but you got to get so many more of them. Yeah, that's true. Especially in early childhood, right? Like it's like, Hey kiddo, here's another polio shot. Right. <laughs> Oil shot, pneumonia shot, meningitis shot. They're all great, but measles, just two. You're good. My poor kiddo got an extra pneumonia shot too because he had had the Prevnar 7. And then when the Prevnar 13 mm-hmm. came out, I was like, hey, give me one of those too. Because mm-hmm. I'm that kind of fun, mom. <laughs> um, thank you so much for talking to me. I always like talking to you. Uh, and I forgot to mention to everyone that you are the guy who always wears the bow tie. Uh, in case they're wondering which Dr. Nate you are. <laughs> yes. Not the Star Wars one. No. Uh, Star Wars socks, but uh, you will catch a bow tie. Yeah, that's right. Uh, any last words of wisdom that you want to leave us with? No, I mean, I really um, like that we kind of ended on talking about how, you know, this work isn't just to do it for those who have been disadvantaged by structural racism or structural inequity. It really is to liberate all of us from, um, you know, the potential that our society is missing out on by not having more equity baked into it from the beginning. So, um, so I really appreciated ending on that point because that's how I really hope to try to end uh, most of my talks on this uh, topic on is, is, you know, this is one of the ways that we can move together towards our shared goal. Absolutely. Yep. It's, it's, I mean, you said it, perfectly. So I'm not even going to add on to that. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, Where can people find you on Twitter or other places on the internet if they want to follow more of your uh, smartness and words of wisdom and see your bow ties? (laughs) Yeah, I'm um, I'm pretty busy. So my overall online profile has diminished a little bit. I'm at uh, Chomolo, M-D-C-H-O-M-I-L-O-M-D on Twitter. Fabulous. Thank you so much. have a great night. It's night here as we're recording this. I'm actually sitting outside audience in the dark um, being bitten by mosquitoes. That's how important this interview was to me. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Karen. And thank you to all you listening on the other end for joining us today. Please take a moment to think about your communities and how you can make healthcare accessible and friendly for everyone in it. But in the meantime, my name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. Uh, and I'm Nathan Boonstra. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is PeteGeekMD. You can fo- also find me on my blog, PeteGeekMD.com.